Don't clap too soon. <laughs> it's, uh, it's lovely to be here again and to be able to minister the word of God uh, in another uh, part of his kingdom. And to see your familiar faces again, I'd love to catch up with you, those of you that we've met before, and see how things are progressing um, in this outpost of the kingdom uh, here in Chelsea. Not that you're a long way away from anything. It's, this is the centre of the world, isn't it? This is, <laughs> we're a long way away from Chelsea. <laughs> but uh, it's lovely to be here and uh, thank you for this opportunity. Uh, choosing Christ, uh, I was tempted to do something today just on the doctrine of Christ, but I want to emphasise more the choosing word <laughs> this morning as we look at this passage and this uh, passage in the book of Acts is, for me, one of the most significant uh, lessons that we can learn about how to live in this modern world, this contemporary world, and what posture we should take towards it uh, as those who name the name Christ. I don't know about yourself, but uh, I get a great sense each quarter as time goes by in our society that a great shifting of the sands is happening underneath us, that this society is, is transforming into something quite godless. Uh, little by little, the frog is being boiled in the politically correct kettle and we are becoming more and more aliens in a culture that was once built upon Christian foundations. And, uh, you know, if you just look in the last few years, two years ago, you know, we've now redefined what the word marriage means. Uh, we have, in most states, more of them uh, late-term abortion as, as uh, okay, and a way of dealing with the inconvenience of childhood, and euthanasia on demand, and new bills to curtail religious expression being formed as we sit here. That's not the country I expected to grow old in uh, as a young person. But we see here in this ground shift something that we should have seen coming. It's been coming for a long time. It began in the academy, in the universities in Europe. And back in the 1930s in uh, the Strasbourg School, not many of us have been there, let alone heard of it. I haven't. <laughs> but uh, there was a philosopher, Herbert Marcuse, and uh, he really is the father of political correctness. And he had this idea that has been termed uh, cultural Marxism, not economic Marxism as the communist world, socialist world uh, was founded upon, but cultural Marxism. This idea that humanity is basically good, that humanity is basically constrained and we are... Uh, constrained by things which are just constructions of men, their institutions like marriage, like government. And uh, the human spirit is being constrained by these forces, said Marcuse. And so what we've got to do is liberate that spirit by raising questions about the permanence or the reality even of these institutions like government, like marriage, and the very language we use. Now, if you go to university today, especially in the humanities, not so much the sciences, you have to watch that you don't use trigger phrases, that you do not offend someone when you speak about things which are quite obvious. 
we now have this ridiculous notion, as hearing on ABC, the uh, font of all ridiculousness, that uh, that parents actually assign the gender of their children at birth. Now, I thought that my parents looked at me and went, hooray, it's a boy. But they went, hooray, it might be a boy, <laughs> evidently. Who knows what it, well, it shall be? And we'll let him determine his gender. It, this is just the sort of world which Marcuse began and it has pushed through the cultural revolution and the sexual revolution of the 1960s and the whole destabilising of our language, and our structures, our thinking and the attack on our institutions. The very stuff you see in the British Parliament as they struggle with Brexit comes from this idea that no one shall constrain our options. Both sides have adopted that notion. These are human constructs. These are human ideas. And now one of the most repressive concepts that we have in our society is the concept of toleration. Isn't that astounding? That we must affirm all those views, even those views that we disagree with vehemently, lest we be termed a hater. That's part of the Marxism, the silencing of public thought and speech, the opposing of any view which has the notion that there might be a reality out there that is permanent, that's meant to be, that families are constructed in a certain way. All that must be opposed vigorously. And the attack on the person comes down to using words like haters, etc. Well, what I'd like to say is that we've been here before and the world we are living in now is not that different to the sophisticated world of Athens that Paul visited. He knew how to deal with it. In many ways, the church doesn't. Now, I can handle the world going to hell in a can basket. That's their prerogative if they want to do it. What I can't handle is when the church chases them down that route. And that's my concern. You know, when the church decides to avoid hot potatoes, that's where it begins. When the church is more concerned about growing itself and getting subscribers or clients or customers for its wares. That's where it begins. Because then we avoid hot potatoes. And we settle for minimising our theological concepts. We'll just talk about the cross or the love of God or the resurrection, the Holy Spirit and his comfort. We'll just narrow it down to those things and we'll avoid those contentious issues because theology divides people. It also preserves the church. And then after a while, the church ends up a little uncertain about what it actually does believe. And it starts to believe that it's inadequate to speak into the public sphere. It has nothing to say. And after a while, that goes to seed and we refuse to go public with even what we believe. And the next step down that, that station line, the next station down that track, is that we end up endorsing what the world believes, as some denominations do in our context now, as the Baptists will do if they don't watch what they're thinking. We end up with a product called the progressive evangelical, which is nothing other than a Christian pickled in political correctness. It ends up in dead liberalism. A few years ago, I was teaching in a college just uh, fleetingly, uh, I was helping them out, and I had a postgraduate co research course 
And one of the exercises this group in uh, this college had to do was a group project on the larger churches in Melbourne. And they were teasing out whether large churches have any concern about the social fabric or compassionate ministry. That was their thing. They finally handed in their term paper and I had to mark this thing and, and I was reading it and they were quite surprised. They discovered that a lot of the larger churches actually have their oar in the water of human need and they, they do do a lot that's compassionate. It was a surprise. But what they were even more surprised about was that none of those churches were affirming a woman's right to abort her child, no matter what the term, or the rights of gays to have equal standing in the institution of marriage. They were surprised that none of the larger churches in Melbourne went down that line. So I wrote in the margins repeatedly, um, why were you surprised? I can't understand your surprise. What surprised you about that? And at the end, when I was writing my summation of their mini-thesis, I, I said, um, I just can't understand. I need you to explain why you were surprised that these churches, which have not deviated from historic Christianity, should have been endorsing these views of society. I didn't hear anything about that until about two weeks later. The college was served with a five-page legal letter from a, a lawyer demanding my sacking. And the grounds of the charge was that I was constraining, my hate speech was constraining intellectual freedom. So this is very much the church we live in. And you either take a, a step back or what do we do? Let's have a look what Paul would do. I think you can guess. I would love it if the Lord just for one minute would allow the Apostle Paul to come back and speak to a nice ecumenical gathering. <laughs> I don't think he'd be that polite. Let's have a look what happened. Here he is in Athens. And Paul was uh, in Athens and he had this experience as he looked around the city of Athens that he saw that the city was full of idols. The Athenians were uh, incredibly... Uh, good at constructing images of various gods. A little bit like uh, my wife and I were in a, had a conference that we went to two years ago in Bali and we're out on this beautiful part of the, the foreshore. But everywhere you went there was idolatry. There was these grotesque images made out of fiberglass on the very beach that we're there. And that was one of the gods. Uh, wherever we sat to eat, there was someone would begin the day by sacrificing something or offering something to a little Buddha or, or some other god and, and uh, it was part of the culture and Athens was just like this. But these weren't, these weren't you know, backyard pagans. This was highbrow Greek philosophical culture. This was a university city, you could say. And yet Paul is, sees everywhere wall-to-wall idolatry. And so he does what he normally does and he goes to church on Saturday. He goes to the synagogue and he starts bringing the news that God has broken into history for the Jews and others and uh, spelling this out. And he's reasoning also in the marketplace, we read in verse 17. And then people start to hear about this Paul. Some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans are more like the well, a bit more liberal in their virtues. 
and the Stoics were more strict and controlled. Self-control was very important, uh, the highest virtue for the Stoic. Quite the opposite ends of the spectrum, a little bit like philosophical options in our, our own society. And they were conversing with Paul and uh, they start thinking in terms of contempt. What on earth is this guy babbling on about, they're, they're saying? He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because they heard him speaking about Jesus and the resurrection. And they assumed then they heard about Yesu and Anastasis, these, these were two gods, and that this fellow was offering sort of some bipole between, of, of gods. And so they bring him, they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, as we read this text, we might think, well, isn't that nice? He got an invite to give a speech down at the market. What we've got to realise is two things that uh, this is actually a various, a very precarious predicament, verses 19 to 20. This is a precarious predicament. They're not just curious, but this is euphemistic language. This is like when you read on the news that the police have, have someone in custody who's helping them with their inquiry. You know, he's not helping at all. He's doing everything to hinder their inquiry, but that's what you say. And here they say to Paul, will you come and just... Explain yourself. Now, what they do, they've taken him to this place called the marketplace or the Aeropagus, but it's not like Vic Market. It's not where you go to buy your veggies or a new chook. It's where you are taken to debate philosophy. And religion and philosophy, they're the same thing in Greece. They're interlocking, they're woven together. So Paul is actually being... Arraigned, he's being taken to explain himself. And now this is the same marketplace where the great philosopher back in 353, I think it is, BC, Socrates, father of philosophy, was taken and arraigned for presenting new deities. So this is where you go if you want to offer a new idea or a new deity, you've got to run it by the Eropagites the councillors who sit at this marketplace, to get your licence to operate. So this is a very dangerous thing. Socrates was killed at this marketplace for arranging new deities, presenting them. And that's what's happening here with Paul. He is in deep doo-doo and he has got to explain himself. And the terms of trade that they're offering you, if you're going to operate a new religion in Athens or in a, th- a Greek area, you've got, to do th- you've got to do three things in particular. Firstly, you've got to have a testimony of some mystical encounter with the deity. You've got to be able to tell them about some vision. And secondly, you've got to be able to bankroll a new religion. You've got to be able to build a shrine at least, and a temple preferably. You've got to be able to employ some priests to run this. And you've got to be able to feed the deity. You've got to be able to get the right amount of stock in to kill or to sacrifice or whatever the deity prefers to eat. So you've got to offer the deity a dorm. And uh, you've also got to have, thirdly, like a brand. You've got to have a token 
that they, the people can visualize the deity, you know, how many horns has it got, uh, what does it do, wings, fly, you know. It's sort of like a, these deities were like a cross between Spider-Man and the Hulk and they were, you know, uh, quite grotesque figures. Um, and that's often the way with the way when humans start to create their own gods. So that's, that's what they're offering Paul. Tell us your story, put up or shut up, and what's your brand? And that's the, where he has to begin. That's the choice he has, and that's the choice today. That's the choice that the ABC would offer you on any panel. You're okay as long as you acknowledge that your Christianity is one of the great faiths, that it's part of the whole pantheon of, of spiritualities. It's quite a patronising position. It's this idea that if you believe in one God, then you're the same as all the other monotheisms out there, really. It doesn't really matter. Uh, basically, the intelligentsia don't believe there are any gods, so you, know, you shouldn't get upset if we patronise you and you're just believing in one of the monotheisms, which is as silly as saying that you know, two men in this room are married to one woman, therefore it must be the same woman. It just doesn't follow in life. It doesn't follow in the heavens either. Pluralism is a freight train to oblivion. And Paul didn't take that train. If he had said, let's just take this now. They're offering us this little space. We can be a legal religion in the university city of Athens and go right around the world. But we've just got to keep our head down and be just one of the faiths. If Paul had taken that, that option, of being one of the faiths, he would have reinforced their terms of trade that they had the right to decide what truth was in the Areopagus. And that was men determining God's right to speak into this world. And they had the right to arbitrate truth. So what does Paul actually do? In verse 22, Paul stands in the midst of this, this council and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that you're very religious. Because everywhere I looked, wherever I went, I see gods and idols and objects of worship. But while I was walking along, I found this other altar on my way up from the wharves or whatever, an idol, a altar with nothing on it and the inscription read to the unknown God. And evidently archaeologists have found such things around Greece and, and Athens to the unknown God. And most likely these people had built these things just in case they'd forgotten one of the gods and he, they didn't want he or her to be offended, so they'd build these things. But Paul is saying, what you acknowledge as unknown, I proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you about the God that you don't know. Paul's whole premise is that the whole lot of you are ignorant. You actually don't know God at all. We've got to read what comes in this classic passage in that light. That's his heading. The ignorance of paganism. The ignorance of world religion. It's not that we graft ourselves as Christians onto a set of ideas that already exist. We wipe the whiteboard clean when Christ comes. He will not uh, accept a minimal place amongst other deities. And this is what Paul is saying. 
to the unknown God. And then he says, I'm going to tell you about your terms of trade and what I think about them. Verse 24. Firstly, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples made by man, so there'll be no dormitory. Nor is he served by hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives all life to all ma- life and breath to everything. There'll be no dinner. And he made one man from every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And that's just rubbing the Athenians' nose in it because they thought that they were the elites, that Paul had come up the mountain to mix with them. And Paul is relativizing that arrogance of, a, of a, the Athenian mindset here. He's saying, basically, you only have the turf you're on because God has determined to give you this time. Donald Trump thinks he's going to make America great again, but that's up to Jesus Christ. Our God is the God who is responsible for the rise of China in this day. Our God is behind what Iran is doing. And they are the pawns on his board. They act as if they're independent. They serve his greater purpose to bring his kingdom into this world. That's the God we worship here. That's the God you mix with. That's the God who comes here this morning is the God who owns the chessboard of politics. And he raises them up and he lowers them down. That's the God that Paul believed in, the one God, the sovereign God. Remarkable here too that Paul does not bless their terms of trade. He will not reinforce their world view, their false belief in their sophistication. Interestingly also is that he, he doesn't speak about his own divine encounters. Paul doesn't say, well, I've actually met the deity, I was knocked on, off my horse. I actually used to oppose him, but I met him on a road. He doesn't talk about the healings he had. If you can read in the previous chapters, lame men uh, right across Asia and others, that he, he was dramatically used by God. To do so would be to reinforce this same idea that their God is just, his God is just in a competition to impress people. And he won't do it. He could have, but he didn't. He leaves his own record out of it. He wants them to focus on Christ and Christ alone. That's his job. And he won't get into the limelight himself. So here we have Paul. And then he comes up with his to resistance in verse 27 he says he's given you boundaries of time and space to live in as a nation and verse 27 is a famous verse that is not translated well in my version of the bible and he's saying basically what's happening here and he's picking up on this idea of the philosopher plato who spoke about Reality as being like living in a cave and we only see shadows and the light is outside the cave. We don't really know what's real. At best we know in shadows. That's Plato's thing. And he's saying here, you guys are all groping around in the shadows. You're slapping the walls of the cave. 
when God is omnipresent, he's only a breath away. And you in all your sophistication are patting around the cave, theorising about the divine. That's what he's saying. Yet your own philosophers say these things, verse 28, that in him we live and move and have our being. What he's saying is, this is from one of their, their two, two of their poets are quoted here, and one is actually saying, you know, it's God who is the brackets around reality. It, it's not that he is made in our image, but we are made in his image. In him we live and breathe and have our being. If it wasn't for God's decision, there'd be no bracket. We wouldn't exist. That's the being we worship. You know, we worship a God by the breath of our lungs through the agency of his spirit but if he decided otherwise he could call it quits today this world is sustained by God they live by his grace moment by moment all the molecules all the laws of physics hold because he holds them that's our God and then another poet said for indeed we are his offspring. He is the beginning and we come from him, not the other way around. The great irony about these Greeks is that they thought they were in the God authorization business. They thought they were in the God making business. But he was in the man making business. And they've got to get that right before they get anything particularly right about God. We are images of him. He's not imaged in us. And so Paul is basically saying, I can quote you, your own philosophers, that you know this stuff. And so when you see all this idolatry, even your philosophers critique it. And therefore your ignorance is culpable. You don't do this in a corner. It's not an accident. You know, the best people amongst you know this is a whole lot of rot. I would have loved to have heard Paul elaborate on that theme. This is just culpable ignorance. Your problem is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. The very fact that this world and the ABC culture we live in, the best of our nation, mock Christianity repeatedly is not because of evidence or science or some philosophical concept. It's because they're evil. It's a moral problem. It's a failure of flaw of character in the human. The best humans are flawed with this. That's where Paul begins. Now he comes to his uh, pinnacle of his little speech. In verse 30 and 31, these verses every Christian, I think, could memorise to great profit and use them day by day. Paul is saying... These times of ignorance, God overlooked. He keeps the world going despite the mockery of your idolatry. He lets it happen day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute. But those days, they're coming to an end. He says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's his pinnacle. 
something you guys need to know, Paul says. Something you Athenians need to take, be aware of, and I'm making you aware of it, that basically you are living in a period of amnesty. And it's not an amnesty from the local library where you can bring the book back and avoid the fine. It's not a gun amnesty. It's a God amnesty where the offence of God is being held for the moment. You notice what Paul says? Let's look through those verses quickly. He says, all men everywhere. Paul's doctrine of humanity is egalitarian. This is true justice. There's no racial superiority here. We all stand inequality before God. We're all condemned before God. But God commands all men to repent, that is to change their attitudes, particularly their attitude towards religion, the cosmos, the world view that has shut God out of his own created world. That is sin and God is calling for repentance. That's the amnesty that he is offering because he has fixed a date Paul hasn't fixed a date. These people were fixed, planning to fix a date for Paul's lynching. But Paul says, I'm here to tell you that God has fixed a date for judgment. And that's what I'm announcing to you that it's already on God's calendar. It's already on his radar. Big red circle around a date when all everywhere will account to God. You know, it's astonishing how even amongst evangelicals today, people are really debating about whether judgment is really fitting of our God. The judge of the world must do right. And here he says, because God has set up a legal standard. What's his standard? His standard is Jesus Christ. He is the epitome of righteousness. He's the measuring stick by which we will be measured. He is the definition of what an authentic human being is. He is the definition of what obedience is. He is the standard of holiness by which we'll be measured. If you think that you can mosey into God's court one day and just say, hey, hey Lord God, it's me, Jeff, your buddy, he'll get the slide rule out. Do you remember what a slide rule is? (laughs) He'll get out the standard and he'll put it against you. And that standard will be Jesus Christ. It won't be my best ideas of my better self. It'll be himself. And if we think we can come up to scratch, if we're that deluded, then we'll suffer the consequences. And then he says this, this God has set a legal precedent. And that is he's given you the assurance that he's going to do this when he raised this standard, this man, this Jesus from the dead. The resurrection that you hear me talking about is actually the history of God working through this man. God has actually put a signal into human history. He didn't need to do it. He didn't need to offer amnesty, but he did. He could have just got fed up with humanity and said, I'll deal with the Martians from now on. No, he he decided to persist with this world and give it the chance to change its attitude to one more worthy of the Creator. And he signalled that he's going to call us to account for our worship of this God, the one God, the only God, is that this God has become flesh and been raised from the dead. He doesn't need to speak twice. He doesn't need to offer more evidence. That's it. 
The resurrection is the linchpin of our message. It is what separates us all from other religions. All the rest of the great prophets. Socrates is dead. Plato is dead. Aristotle is dead. These men died. Paul died, but Christ lives. And until we can debunk that, we have no right to good at going into the marketplace of ideas for something less. That's where we must begin. With who is this Jesus Christ? And that's why we need to be on the front foot as Christians, not taking our little corner that the society gives us. Because God has spoken in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and he doesn't need to speak twice. Once is enough. You know, we often think of the resurrection as some, some little thing that God did to say, hey, uh, you want to see a rabbit out of the hat? <laughs> Jesus out of the grave. God isn't boasting in the resurrection. It's not just some trick he does to grab our attention. It's the defeat of the orders of this world, of lies and sin and the devil. That's what the resurrection is. That's why I choose Christ. Because it's God's word is that event. That's his last word. He doesn't need to speak again. And the resurrection isn't just something you take to hospital when Uncle Wally is on his deathbed and you just want him to think nice thoughts. The resurrection is what confronts all humanity. The resurrection is God saying a new historical order, not cultural Marxism, the reign of Jesus Christ has begun. We meet here in this corner, in this room, but really we should be meeting in the marketplace of ideas on the front foot, announcing to the world that the world they walk on is owned by someone else. They're walking on borrowed turf and they're living on borrowed time because a date has been set. How do we know the date has been set? Jesus has been risen from the tomb. God has spoken. He doesn't need to speak again. Look where we've come from. They drag this unassuming Jewish rabbi with bow legs and balding, probably bad teeth, into a marketplace. He was so disturbing the public order, he's getting called names. He's a hater. And they took him into the marketplace and they said, you better explain yourself, buddy. Ten minutes later, Paul is arraigning the best of the best and he's calling them to account, the philosophers and the religious experts of his age. And that disturbs the audience. Some of them have said, resurrection doesn't fit in with my worldview. The gods don't come to earth. Superman lives in heaven with Spider-Man. Batwoman and all the rest. That's the rubbish they believed in. But some of them heard Paul and when they saw that guy, they knew that the medium matched the message and they said, we've got to hear more about that. And even one of the counsellors and one of the wealthy, wealthy women, 
the, who bankrolled the religion in that place decided that they better follow that God. You see, I think there's hope for the church. Not if the church compromises and becomes more like the world. That is the recipe for oblivion. History says it again and again and again. But if the church puts its front foot forward and it owns Christ publicly and it calls the world to bow the knee to that Christ, that Christ will show up. He lives and in that there is hope. I think there are three things we've got to take out of this passage. If we are to be God's church for this age, we firstly have, one, we've got to recognise the game in which we're living. We've got to know the game. We've got to understand what the philosophers call the plausibility structure, what it is to be politically correct. We've got to understand where that stuff comes from. We can't just live in our Christian bubble. We've got to understand. Now, Paul had done his homework. He knew what these people really believed. Secondly, we've got to resist the temptation to merge the gospel with what is politically correct at the moment. Imagine if Paul had caved. Imagine if Paul had decided to save his own neck. He risked it. We would have ended up with the Uniting Church in the first century. The resurrection of faith would be all we're talking about, not the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. We'd have nothing to offer the world except our preference. And that's not what we offer the world. I choose Christ. He is my preference because he is the only true God and the resurrection is what says that. Thirdly, we must prepare to be rejected. A church that looks for social approval of its programs, its performance, is not a mark of success, it's a mark of failure. Often that sort of church growth theory is mistaken for evangelism. But this is evangelism. Telling men where they stand, that they have an amnesty period which is going to close and they've got to act. That's evangelism. It's not, you're feeling a little unloved? Could you use a little more love? Jesus loves. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that this world is living on a knife edge of the judgment of God. And it's got a moment when it can change. That is going to not make friends. It's going to be something which will involve rejection. But I put it to you. The church around the world that understands those three points is the church that is growing against the political correctness of whatever they're living in. A few years ago, about a decade now, I was doing some underground work in China and uh, I, I had the privilege by accident of coming across a young Chinese pastor and uh, he actually had better English than I and I was invited to uh, meet him at a restaurant that was um, uh, you know, there was a wedding going on so we could sort of hide amongst the crowd and just talk. 
we got a little room off to the side and, and he needed a translator to understand my Australian. He'd never heard a language like that before and um, so he couldn't follow what I was saying but I could hear him perfectly in Durham English. He'd studied overseas. and But he, he had just been released from jail after 28 days in jail. And uh, that was interesting in itself. He was a uh, two-year-old Christian who had uh, studied the scriptures in the West and then gone back and decided to lead his neighbourhood to Jesus. And he had a little church of about 80 people. And he was uh, pastoring that church. We called him Joshua. It was the closest name we could get to his Chinese name. And and I was hearing his story and... um, and basically, he just couldn't get a religious license. Remind you of someone? And he'd been along to the authorities and he'd put up his case. They said, you're not one of the official religions on our list. Uh, he says, I'm just a Christian. And, uh, you know, I want a place to, to meet with my church. Who gave you the right to start a church? Ha, huh. interesting question. Well, he, uh, he found that whatever they did, whichever basement or warehouse that they, they did, the authorities would come in and throw them out and fine them. He was finally taken to court in a pretty roughed up condition and uh, the, the judge asked him, you know, how do you plead given that we've given you all these warnings and now we find you worshipping in the People's Park? How do you plead that you're carrying on this clandestine religious activity. And they threw everything at him. The list of charges meant that he was looking at a 28-year prison sentence. And in China, in fact, they can put you in jail while they're still working on the charge. It's the same thing in Malaysia. It's absolutely corrupt. They have never had the Westminster system. You need Christianity to get the Westminster system. And so he said, well, I'm in for a penny, I'm in for a pound. (laughs) And he said, you think that's the thing that I've done wrong? Let me tell you what I've been doing wrong. And he gave his testimony from the first day he read the gospel through. And he arraigned the judge that the judge had so many days. Only God knew when God would take the life of that judge. And he gave the judge the opportunity to repent and know the judge of judges. Talk about guts. That's the shoulders that the church in China stands on. If that church is going to have another hundred years, it's because the foundations are made of that sort of rock. He chose Christ when he could have saved his neck. Miracle of miracles. 28 days later, he found that the judge had taken pity on him. I wonder why. And released him. When he came back to his little church, who was still worshipping in the People's Park, they'd grown to 120. I wonder why. When we say, I choose Christ, so easy to say those words, but boy, watch what happens when you get that into the public discourse. (laughs) I choose Christ. What we should say is, but don't misunderstand me. 
I'm not saying Christ is my preference amongst others and tomorrow I could choose orange. It's that Christ has chosen me so I choose him alone. That's what it really is. Christ has chosen me so I choose him. If he's been loyal to me, the least I can do is be loyal to him in the public sphere. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you for putting us on the planet in this hour. As we see the lies and the sophistication and the falsehood of this society in which we live, as we watch it crumble morally, politically and philosophically, we thank you, Father, for some amazing reason you have brought us into the knowledge of the great secret that this is God's world. Lord, we pray that you would help us not to keep that secret, but that we would be people who name the name Christ no matter what it costs, wherever it costs. We pray, Lord, give us an understanding of this great opportunity we have and the great argument that is Christ the risen, the one who has been risen from the grave. Lord, it looks tough ahead. It looks like the weather is getting cloudier and rainier, but we pray, Father God, that you, the God who managed to bring a dead Christ out of a damp grave and lift him to glory, will do the same for your body, church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.